0: Hello, thanks for having a listen. Welcome to Socially Distancing, a podcast I came up with a name for before the concept. Anyway, each episode I'm going to speak to different people in the sport and media industries to try and give you an insight into what it is we're actually doing when there isn't any sport going on. Enjoy. So, I've got Emma Sanders from BBC Sport. Uh, Susie Rapp from The Guardian and Molly Hudson from The Times, so thanks very much for all joining me. How are you all dealing with being in pretty much lockdown at the moment?
1: Yeah, yeah it's, um, it's, it's a bit of a change from having worked 24-7, basically. Um, all three of us were out in the States as well, covering England women's team at the Cup, literally just before we came back to England, so it was a bit of a shock, really, going from sort of working and being around people every day for two weeks to then sitting at home and struggling to find
2: stuff to do yeah I've got the bonus of a, a six year old who is now off school to keep me entertained but I, I'm quite lucky in the uh, I've got an office that I can actually shut the door to which you know, I was thinking about it today if I didn't have a bit of space to work in away from the family and a garden it would be really really difficult to have kids
0: Around at
2: this kind of time, yeah. I I think as difficult as it's as it's kind
3: of been for us all, we're all kind of getting used to coming up with ideas, and obviously like the massive lack of live sport is something that will impact all of us. But I think we're all very aware, even um, with people that we've been in in the chivalry's cup with as em's just said there's people there that are like freelancers that just have have no income now at all essentially so i think we're all really lucky in the fact that we're backed by kind of big sporting organizations that will still go to print and will still have content so i think as difficult as, as it is it's really important to to say that we're actually the lucky ones in this kind of situation
0: yeah definitely i think that's um you feel feeling quite a privileged position really don't you because even though it's weird because you never imagine a world without sport. Like before, a couple of weeks ago, I was never envisaged this ever happening. Um, but to be sort of contracted, like say, to to companies where you're not going to lose your job actually suddenly makes you realise, wow, we're doing okay here. The, the question people keep asking me, I say people keep asking me, my mum keeps asking me, is what, what are you doing with no sport? And um, I'm trying to come up with reasons to things I am doing, but... What, uh, so I'm going to be annoying and put that question to you guys. Like, what? Uh, how are you sort of? What content are you coming up with, I suppose? And how are you filling your time, or what you're being asked to do by your your different outlets to to help out at this moment?
1: Well, I've been in search, and I know I know Molly has as well. With a couple of um, women's Super League clubs, to try and get them to give us some information on what the players and the staff are doing during this time, because while we are all sat at home struggling to, to think of how to fill our time. I think a lot of people will be interested to know how the professional athletes are still keeping up with their training regimes and they, you know, are they having weekly Skype sessions and going through tactics or are they already thinking about the next game? Um, so I think that's something that's certainly of interest and that's the kind of content that I'm trying to gather at the moment. And then I think there's also this kind of interest in what's going to happen with all of the major tournaments, there's a lot of reaction to that and um, just, you know, delaying the men's Euros to 2021 what impact is that going to have on the women's Euros and, you know, there's a lot of reaction to that so, um, how will that affect preparation for the women's players, how will that affect preparation for the men's players, people like Phil Neville, will his position be under even more threat because you know, there's there's a chance that the FA might for somebody else if the tournament gets delayed even further because, that you know, there'd be more time there for somebody else to come in and, and do a new job. So there's, there's a couple of these questions that are around which are, which is worth exploring. And I think it's just sort of tapping into those, um, the questions that we're discussing with our friends every day, you know, what's going to happen to this, what's going to happen to that. It's about tapping into those questions and trying to find some kind of answer or some kind of guidance from, from the people that are actually involved
2: in the sport. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I've been similarly ringing around clubs and trying to get a picture of, uh, of what's what's going on there, but also to just chat to them and say that now is a really good time to be pitching any ideas that they've got as well um, for things that they think are particularly interesting about what they're, what they're doing at the moment and generally. Um, you know, often there's not... I'm very lucky at The Guardian in that we give a lot of space to women's sport and women's football in particular but like not everywhere does and now is the perfect time to be kind of pitching those types of stories to us to our papers and um uh our media organizations because there is the there is the space for it now and there also is a demand for it if people can't go out and are stuck indoors and all they can do pretty much is read or watch stuff so from that point of view it's it's sort of slightly rewarding that you know that there's going to be a, probably a bigger uptake on on what you produce and there maybe be words normally in fact uh, but then also the chance to pick up on features and stuff that i've had in the pipeline for a while has been really useful um i hate doing phone interviews i much prefer to sit down and do them face to face but um uh doing shed loads phone interviews for various um features that have been kind of working on for quite a while um, and having the time to actually transcribe them without having to run from match to match or training ground to training ground is kind of nice, if a little bit kind of weird as well.
0: Yeah, that must seem like a novelty. Does it not transcribing quotes on a train going somewhere? Or <laughs> actually it, time it is.
2: It? It's, it's doing it at, sitting at a desk <laughs> at a reasonable hour of the day, uh, for sure. <laughs> because, yeah, it is usually um on a train or paused in the car at a mcdonald's service station or something like that so it is sort of slightly liberating to be free of the kind of week-to-week live football grind from that point of view that yeah. said what well, the hardest part is not having the structure of it um because that you know there's always something you've got to get it done before or after whereas now it's sort of you know Oh well, if I don't transcribe it today, I can transcribe it tomorrow, and I've definitely, you know, I can definitely do that. I know I've got I've got a phone call this time, but other than that, I'm fairly free, you know. And it, it's it's forcing yourself to put deadlines on things and give deadlines to your editors for pieces, so that you've kind of got something to, um, something to kind of work towards. Otherwise, the risk is is that you kind of fall into a little bit of a slump and end up just delaying stuff for for a while and. Uh, and and not getting out of bed and getting dressed and things like that.
0: Yeah, How, have you found that the have the clubs been or clubs and players and organisations been quite receptive and giving you access to to players?
3: I think it's difficult because um, obviously the press and the number of people interested in women's football has increased so much recently, um, and I think it takes certainly WSL clubs and certainly championship clubs where you know even the even the players are part time you have to remember that they kind of need time to catch up with that demand and i think particularly now the the press officers obviously have never dealt with anything like this and you know that goes for men's football and any sport really it's kind of unprecedented times but i think it's particularly hard for for those press officers that maybe haven't been in the job for for that long and they're trying to decide like the best kind of way to go about things. Um, so I think it's one of those things where after the initial kind of shock of it and the, you know, the kind of updates of we're training from home or we're the training centre's closed or whatever, I think after that, um, as one of the girls just said, you'll get to that point where there's, there's just nothing going on and the players have got nothing going on and the media staff has got nothing going on. And that's when I think we can all help each other because essentially we're all in the same boat and touching on your your question about the kind of content we're producing i think you have to remember ultimately that we kind of see football in its own sphere a lot of the time these kind of celebrities um that are, that are doing this dream job but actually they're just people and they're the same people they're having the same problems that we're all having you know the anxieties the money worries and all of that and i think it's really important to for that to come across really that actually now we're all in the same boat and nobody's immune and nobody's kind of any different depending on how good you are at football. That That's kind of irrelevant. It's kind of a level playing field in that respect.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree with Molly there. And I know that as um, three, um, we discussed this the other day. I know the FA are quite, keen on WSL clubs and their press officers to to keep up the, the visibility of the game because I think it was Emma Hayes who said on Radio 5 Live uh, either this morning or yesterday that we've worked so hard to get to this point now where people are talking about the game that it would be a shame to just sort of forget about it during this period of, of uncertainty, which, as Molly rightly says, is is the same for everyone, whether or not, you know, you work in the NHS or you're a journalist or, or you're a footballer, it's exactly the same for everyone. So um, I do think it's a good window to get those human interest stories across and to really showcase the personalities in the game and not just the, the sporting stories. Yeah,
0: the, I meant to ask you about personalities in the game, actually, because... Um, there's, there are obviously some big personalities in the game. I think Susie, am I right in saying that you did a big piece with um, Megan Rapinoe last last year, who is I obviously did, yeah. one of the biggest uh, um, biggest sort of names and biggest personalities. Um, first of all, what what was she like, or what was it like to sit down with her for a sort of long period of time? And also, um, is having those has having those sort of personalities been brought out in the media is that helped? build the game in a way as well, because people can relate to or or feel like they get an insight into um, people that
2: are playing the game. Oh, 100%. I think as well, particularly with women's footballers, is that the very fact that they've had to struggle at every stage just to be able to play the game, uh, whether that be balancing it with work or studying, um, like sometimes more than one job to be able to do it, uh, traveling ridiculous hours, kind of being late on training pitches because the boys have got to train first, all that kind of stuff makes their stories a lot more relatable because um, you know they they exist in a world that is a lot more familiar to an ordinary person than say a uh, elite men's player who is you know obviously kind of living uh, in a in a very very different world of lifestyle to the rest of us. Rapido was probably as brilliant as you could imagine she would be um, like what what really struck me was how kind of normal she was in that she like very much has this public persona as a bit of a uh, like uh, sort of a bit arrogant maybe or uh, a bit full of it and she's just not at all when you sit down with her one-on-one if anything she's like quite understated and shy and thoughtful and almost still very assured in what she believes but um that there, there's there's not a spread of the sort of that sort of public persona to her when you sit down and, and talk to her uh one-on-one uh, i had an hour and a half of her breakfast and we just chatted sport, politics Society, feminism, the presidential election you know literally everything and it is like sitting around a table with your with your mates uh, in a pub just you know kind of chatting about life in general uh, she's yeah incredible person it's like it for me the exciting thing is having a elite athlete who is at the top of their game uh, willing to have those conversations discussions and not kind of have any fear of a backlash over it, whether that be from sponsors or from agents or from clubs, just this freedom to, to you know, speak very, very freely, um, which you just don't see in most elite sports anymore, uh, particularly not in the men's game. How refreshing would it be to see, um, you know, a Premier League footballer having those kind of conversations? Um,
0: yeah, that seems like a... Um... A good time to ask all three of you actually then about, do you think that, um, or, how, or how, how do you think, what do you feel about the representation of, of women's sport, first of all, in uh, the different outlets you work for and also the, the media in general?
1: Well, obviously, because I work for um, BBC Sport alongside you, Alex, you, you know that we've, especially in the last 12 months, we've ramped up our women's sport coverage, especially women's football as well. So since that World Cup in the summer, um, I'm effectively part of a a kind of a new women's football team, and I have a lot more freedom on my rotor to to be able to pitch stories that that we wouldn't have usually done. We would have just covered, you know, matches and tournaments, and not to the same level that we would have done um, as a men's tournament. So it's quite refreshing now that, you know, I can go to my editor and say, "There's this really nice story about, um, you know, a footballer who did this, who did that," and and he'll say right okay you know if you get the interview and and it's good then then we'll run it and there's no restrictions on that and that's a beauty I guess for working for a website that's as big as as the BBC and obviously we cater for you know um lots of different audiences so um that's that's something that we've that we've certainly put our efforts into especially in the last 12 months but like I know I know Molly. Um, you know she's limited to to kind of what she, what she can put in in print copy. So you know when we were out in America and we had these roundtables, it was very much a case of right, what can we save so that you know um, newspapers like the Times can have can have something that will run on on you know the Monday morning, whereas um, obviously I was quite keen to get something on our website on the Sunday night. So it's all kind of about balancing that. But yeah, so I, I can imagine it's probably a bit different for you than Molly.
3: I think um, everyone would concede that it's a work in progress, and I think that's something we'd probably concede for pretty much every organisation. And um, what what we always say to people, and you know, our, even Phil Neville has said to this, um, this to us quite recently at the Champions Cup, that those of us that have been writing about women's sport and women's football in particular have kind of grown with the sport because it's one of those where when we all first started, I started, I think, three years ago. You were kind of, pick, like all of us, pitch stuff to our desk, and we are having to fight for the, for these stories and these these players to get the stories out there. So I think it's not like as Susie was saying. When I go and do a Jose Mourinho press conference, I don't have to fight for the space for a Jose Mourinho press conference because it's just there because it's Mourinho speaking. Whereas if I go and do a a, a women's interview or something, I have to really sell that. Um, and, you know, why it should go in the paper and what's good about it and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so I think it is a work in progress. I think everyone has improved a lot um, over the past year in particular. I think it's really nice when i was speaking personally, but when when you ring up your editors and they'll say, oh, I saw this game at the weekend or, oh, I know who this player is. And that's something that, like, everyone is taking making a conscious effort to improve upon, I think um but i think it is also difficult at the end of the day it's different for a website like bbc sport but when you have a newspaper you have x amount of pages and you have this amount of space and like while women's football is getting bigger the premier league isn't getting any smaller so the premier league space remains the premier league space if that makes sense so if you then divide up an entire sports section into all of the different sports, none of which are shrinking, you find that it's harder and harder to find space in the paper, which is why we're moving a lot of things to digital now. I think we have we have more digital subscribers than paper readers now anyway. So logically, it makes sense. But it also means that we can give more space to stories about women's sport and women's football that maybe before would have got, you know, 200 words in the corner of a page and you would have probably missed out on it. Whereas now you can write 800 words in a feature online and it gets a really good showing.
0: Yeah. Do you think, um, just from your own personal careers as well, and looking at the the, the people and the, the staff around you, do you think that women are now better represented actually in the media industry from kind of our journalistic, journalistic side of things, um, as well and do you think that has that helped and i imagine you say it's work in progress and it should be more as well and i guess how do how do you reach that goal of, of, of encouraging more more women journalists
1: to, to be <laughs> honest because i so i i started out as a freelancer when i left uh university in 2015 and i was working for the local echo newspaper there and um I so I started off in men's football. I did do women's football but a lot of that was kind of in my free time. Um so I you know, I would probably say i have kind of been pays around about women's football for about two years, but I've probably been doing it for five years. But I haven't really seen an increase in female representation in men's games. So, you know, when I was at Anfield in December, um for a Premier League game against Watford, I think I was one of maybe about four people in the entire Press box that was female, um, and it, that was pretty much the case um, when I when I used to do it. You know, three, four, five years ago, that hasn't really changed. But I have seen a massive growth in, um, especially the last two years that I've been kind of in and around women's football a lot more. I've definitely seen you know um, a growth there in in the sense that there's a lot more uh, females wanting to get involved in in the sport and they see women's football as a really exciting and enjoyable avenue to work in because you know I know Susie and Molly are great friends of mine and I know that you know I go to to women's super league games with them and it's not just it's not just a job it's genuinely you feel like you're giving something for a sport that matters and you're part of as Molly said there that you know Phil Neville's discusses we're, we're all part of the movement together and you feel like you're doing something um, to help the game when you're there. So, you know, you're there with your friends, you're doing something that you feel is really valuable. And, you know, you see a lot of young women coming into uh, the women's football environment. I've not seen that in men's football. I don't know whether, you know, Susie and Molly's opinion is different, but I, I definitely want to see a lot more women reporting on men's football. No, I agree. I
2: think I... a part of it is... Um, is the, the the problem you've got in men's football um, and, journal, and journalism generally, let alone just sports journalism, is that um, particularly in print, it's a shrinking industry, and there's you know that it's very rare that jobs come up at big media organisations to cover the Premier League, uh, Premier League teams or matches or whatever. It's it's those jobs don't really just appear and uh, even if they do, they're generally, you know, kind of headhunted rather than, uh, you know, kind of advertised and th- that means that you don't necessarily see a massive turnover, particularly when there is so few jobs around to cover them, if that makes sense. whereas. I, I think it'd be fair to describe the growth of women's football as uh, having created sort of like one of the very, very few growth areas of sports journalism of late. In that, like, uh, you know, me- media organisations have felt somewhat both obligated, but also have seen that it, it, there there is going to be. Commercial gain in the long term if they invest in women's football, whereas you know most of them already have um, like a lot of their other football coverage. You know, kind of pretty much sewn up uh, in terms of who kind of is doing it. So it's given them an opportunity to to kind of bring in a lot of talented young women uh, journalists that wouldn't necessarily get the chance to cover. Men's football uh, on a week to week basis in the way that we're doing on the women's side, and um, and have them working for national organisations. You then get people like Molly, who was then also thrown into the men's game as well, and is doing stuff on both. Um, Once she's kind of through the door and is is trusted to, Um, but for me, it's uh, it like there's very little turnover. Um, the athletic changed things a little bit in that respect in terms of kind of moving on a layer and giving opportunities for organizations to kind of think a bit more broadly about what they want to look like and what they want the desks to look like but for a very long time there's been very 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 little change in the personnel because the industry is not like a big growth industry um, and that's meant that they're you know that like even if um, even if the guardian for example has all the best will in the world ideologically about uh about diversity about uh wanting a good gender balance and a good um, good uh ethnic minority representation within a newsroom or within their reporters or whatever if the jobs aren't there to do it like you can't just clear the mountain can't just clear the way necessarily to create those uh, to create those places for for people to go. You have to you have to expand your journalism in some way and women's football has been an opportunity for them to do that in a way that, you know, wouldn't necessarily have been thought of. But for me it's like it's almost like a little new pocket of journalism has opened up that opportunity. Yeah.
3: For me um, I think I I kind of came into it the opposite way to emma in in respects that i started off doing women's football um and then off the back of that and that growth i i now do the premier league and um other sports as well but i think i would i i would agree with what emma said in respect to when i kind of come from women's football and i do men's football, i, I i'm probably like half and half in terms of the split of my time um in the usual kind of uh, media landscape that isn't coronavirus because at the minute i'm kind of specializing in women's football again um but it's the same kind of faces um people like alison rudd and amy lawrence and louise taylor who have been work been females in men's football for a very long time um are still doing amazing work but i think um it's difficult because I think desks I say desks like our editorial team our bosses they were for me personally were very keen for me not to become a woman doing women's sport and get pigeonholed into that and really wanted me and believed in me to go and write about men's football which I think firstly is really important because I probably didn't believe in myself that I could go and do that until I actually did that until they suggested that to me so firstly I think that's a big bonus point for for my editorial staff that so they recognized that and didn't want me to get trapped in women's football and the fact that you probably don't get as big a word counts and things like that but also i think so i graduated last summer and the argument i try and make to people when when they say well why is representation not getting any better i did a straight up sports journalism degree at one of the best universities for sports journalism in the country um Staffordshire University. Um and they've got, you know, um, they've got graduates in pretty much every Premier League club, in national newspapers, in all all kinds of uh, sports media, and there were only two women in a course of thirty. Now, if you replicate that across the country, which is which is the case, it wasn't a one off. That's just the the representation in these degrees. How do you then expect expect that proportion of women to suddenly become fifty fifty? when it goes into the industry that's never going to happen um so i think the the root cause of the problem is that particularly in print journalism there never were women to look up to it's that old see it be it kind of situation you didn't see female bylines so you didn't think that career was available to you because you know i don't think anybody could say once you've got your foot in the door that um you've you've been treated differently for your gender i certainly haven't from my bosses or anybody that I've worked for, yes, it can be daunting walking into a press room, particularly in men's football, with with the same faces and the same white male faces a lot of the time. And that can be difficult. And I can understand why, if you're not a strong character, that could put you off going into the industry knowing that that's what you're facing. But I think if you really want to do it, then you'll find a way. And I think editors are certainly really helpful in that respect of helping you along the way and giving you the opportunities, even though, as Susie said, we're in an industry that that isn't growing at the moment. um, There will always be different avenues to go down, whether that's digital or or broadcast or things like that.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point, actually, because when I did my NCTJ um, seven or eight years ago now, and it was designed around a sports course, and I think there was three three female journalists there from a pool of about 25. then I started a local newspaper doing news and there's like you know, half the half the newsroom, if not more, is, is um is women. And then like I say, go back into sport and it's um and, and like i said that correlation from the amount of people actually going into the industry thinking they can do sport, um, then correlates across the board, doesn't it? But that's that uh, I was interested to know and I find this for both male and female journalists, about what did you all always think, right, I wanna be sports journalist or was there a moment that made you think like a sporting moment or something that happened like a world cup or an olympics etc that made you think oh, i want to write about sport or did you come into it slightly different routes to each other
2: i,
1: um, I think i really had like a moment where i said all oh, right you know i want to be a sports journalist i think my, my two favorite subjects at school were were pe and, and, and english literature so it, it was just kind of one of those um things which made sense you know when you go into uh you have career lessons well not lessons but you you talk about what kind of career routes you want to take at school and and you know they they put two and two together when you discuss what subjects and your skills and i guess mine just sort of fell in line so i think from about the age of 16 17 i think it was it was pretty much a an obvious route really for me to go down it wasn't really until i came to uni um that I discovered that I actually really, really enjoyed. Um, again, it was more the writing side of it. I've I've never been particularly that interested in the kind of the TV radio side. You know, I'm, I'm eager to learn about it and get more involved in it. But um, it's definitely the actual, you know, putting words to paper that that I enjoy.
3: For me, I did actually have a, a moment, as you have, to kind of described there. Um, I I'd always kind of loved watching the news like in my house as it is in many households it was like six o'clock you watch the news with your mum so it was something that I'd always been kind of into current affairs and things like that and I'd also always been a massive football fan when I was younger I was a massive Chelsea fan so it was um in 2012 and I was also a massive Didier Drogba fan and then in 2012 um in 2012 when Chelsea won the Champions League um, and obviously we're all familiar with, with how that game played out and, and the fact that the way the header was, the way, you know, the penalties, and it was like it was like the script was written for that moment, for Drogba to have that moment in in what then could have been his last appearance in a Chelsea shirt. And, like, looking back at that now, I, I remember writing this in my personal statement at uni for why I wanted to go into sports journalism. It's like... Although it's not like a moment of history that you know is is really really important in the grand scheme of the world, it is a moment of sporting history, and I wanted to write about those moments and and, and live in those moments if that makes sense. Um, so that's that's that was the, the kind of turning point for me where I knew that this was what I wanted to do.
2: Whereas my my route has been very 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 different in that I. When I was growing up I always loved sport, big Arsenal fan, Um, Arsenal ladies, used to train in the park across the road from me when I was growing up, across the road from my council estate. Um, I used to watch Arsenal men, Arsenal women, uh, follow the teams, go to the parades and stuff, read the sports pages, um, but never really thought about who wrote them at all. Um, Never thought about it as a job option never heard about it as a job option, like it just never occurred to me in any way that this was something that people did and I could be one of those that, people that did it. So I, I like every kid had a list of things I wanted to be when I grew up, including like astronaut and things. But um, when I was about eight, I decided I wanted to be an architect and went all out for that. Uh, I still played football. I played football for my school. I played football at college. I played football for a little bit at university. Um, but I, like, everything was focused on being an architect, um, and I studied architecture at university, I did a year's practice, and then I sort of fell out of love with it a little bit, like still enjoyed it, enjoyed people and stuff, just didn't particularly enjoy the industry uh, at the time I was um, getting into it, uh, partly because of the financial crisis kind of affected things quite massively and how the industry was working and the construction industry generally. And then, um, was, you know, sort of thinking about what I wanted to do and started working for a, uh, campaigning youth organisation that, um, campaigned on things like free education, um, and, uh, for decent employment rights, unemployment rights for young people and that kind of stuff. But I was doing all their comms work, um, so all their stuff for, um, getting into the papers and things um all of their design work because i had a design background and from there i went into newspaper design on a small little paper um because i had a design background and it was only when i was there doing like layout sub-editing mainly um uh they i was i would chat to the sports editor pretty much every day just about sport and eventually they're like do you want to cover some sport do you want to give this a go um, and uh, I was like obviously I do um, never thought about it for them at all um, just enjoyed chatting to them, that sort um, and uh, kind of got into it from, from there, um, having never studied it for me in any way bar A-level English um, so yeah, my roots a little bit weird and then it, there was a sort of moment when I was kind of doing it like that Whilst working, um, and fell in just you know utterly fell in love with going to games, covering games, uh, men's and women's, but in particular writing about like the politics of football for fanzines and stuff as well. So I wrote about um the Eva Canavero case, uh, um, uh, uh, Canavero case at Chelsea and uh, the Bundesliga and the refugee crisis and things like that, or Serena Williams and sexism and all those kind of things and enjoyed that side of it and that was uh, the combination of all of these things that I love kind of combining sports, politics, social justice like was the things that made me want to get into sports journalism properly and then I kind of threw myself into it from there but yeah bit of a bit of a,
0: a different route in. No definitely like I say I always find it interesting um not just in sports journalism, but across the board, really, the, the routes people have taken. So it's, it's interesting to to hear you guys and how you got to where you are today. Although, my well, one takeaway from, from all this was that I started a podcast and on the first episode, as a Spurs fan, I've managed to end up with a, a Chelsea fan, an Arsenal fan and a Liverpool fan. Which, uh, <laughs> And that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed listening and as always appreciate any feedback. You can find me on at Alex Bysouth on Twitter. Until next time.